center, the strength, the core of our being. Forgive us for the trappings, for the scaffolding that we build, the framework of the world that we build around ourselves. And we end up being so dependent on so many other things apart from Christ. Lord, would you convict us? Would you teach us? Would you show us how to live as Christ, as our only hope, that Christ would be our lives? Father, thank you for your Holy Spirit who takes your holy word to speak to your holy church. We'll count on you to do that this morning, to instruct us in righteous living, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I... um heard a story a long time ago, maybe you've heard it before, about this old farmer, we'll call him Jenk. Um, he used to love to watch the guy who came through to crop dust uh, in his airplane. I mean, just the, the spin moves and flying so close to the ground and through his orchards and fields and pulling it up at the last minute at the fence rows. And, and one day the crop duster lands his plane on the outside, the other side of the barn. And so old farmer Jenk walks over and he says, you know, he said, uh, been watching you for years fly this plane. He said, I'd really like to take a ride. In fact, he said, my wife Mabel would really like to take a ride. And, and he said, well, uh, you know, normally I don't take people for a ride in my plane. And if I do, I charge them a good bit of money. Um, I have some risk involved here. He said, but I'll tell you what, Jank. He said, you get Mabel, you get in the backseat of the plane and I'll take you for a spin. And if, if you can do this entire ride without saying a single word, It'll be free for you. So Jenk got Mabel. They got in the back of the plane. The crop duster takes off. And he, man, he throttled down and up he goes and spinning and turning and around and pulling up and down close to the ground and spinning around and barrel looping through. And he lands on the backside of the barn and he lands and they get out and the pilot takes his hat off and he looks at the old farmer and he says, you know, he said, I couldn't, didn't think you'd do it. He said, but you did that whole ride without ever talking. He said, farmer said, you know, I almost did say something when we lost Mabel up there on that last spin. (laughs) Which, which sets us up very nicely for our question of the day. The question of the day is, how in control of your words are you? I don't know if you realize how much the Bible has to say about our speech, about our words. We're in a study here from the book of Proverbs. It's a book of wisdom literature written by a man that God endowed with the greatest wisdom from anybody before him, anybody after him, the wisest man who ever lived. God endowed him with tremendous wealth as well. His heart got away from him with wine, women, and wealth. He ends up starting out his life as the wisest man that ever lived. He ends his life as the biggest fool that ever lived. And thankfully for us, he wrote significant instruction, words of wisdom, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's in the book of Proverbs. We're not going to turn there yet. I want to take just a minute. I want to impress upon us uh, the importance of our words. We speak so many words and we don't even think about how important it really is, our speech. And I was overwhelmed, actually, when doing my study in preparation for this sermon. There's so much content on speech and words and the importance of that in our Bibles. I didn't know what to leave out. Um, It was difficult. There's so much important material there. There was a study done some time ago. uh, Actually, a book was written first uh, that was entitled The Female Brain. And it was written by a sociologist and talking about uh, how women and men process words differently. And in that book, the author made the statement that women speak about 20,000 words a day. The average woman will say about 20,000 words a day. The average man was stated in this book that he would speak about 7,000 words in a day. And that number got tossed around and was kind of accepted until a group of people at the University of Arizona some years ago decided to do an actual research project on it, and they found out that that was not a sustainable theory. And they actually got a test group together, this is true, they got a test group together and they did some research on how many words men and women speak in a day. What was interesting about it is they found out that there's hardly any difference between men and women and the number of words spoken in a day. It came out in their test research group that women spoke an average, or the average woman spoke an average of 16,215 words a day. That's still a lot of words. The, the average man speaks an average 15,669 words in a day. So less than a thousand in difference there. 
of total words between men and women. Interestingly enough, in their research pool, the low, uh, the lowest number of words that was recorded by an individual was 700 and, um, 795 words in a day. The most words spoken by an individual in their test group was 47,000 words. And uh, this must have been before texting. <laughs> Even more interesting, by the way, it might be of interest to you to know that the 799 words spoken, that was a man. The 47,000 words spoken in a day, that was also a man, by the way. Interestingly enough, both of them tested out that way. Well, we speak a lot of words. I don't know how many. I'm not going to count. We want to impress upon ourselves this morning the importance of our words, the power of our words. We want to understand this morning that God cares deeply about the words that come out of our mouths. And you stop and think about it, words are just out loud thoughts, aren't they? Words are just out loud thoughts. I thought it would be good for us to begin by continuing to expand upon this idea of the seriousness of words. And I want you to see that God's word speaks with absolute clarity to this point. As I said, there's a number of passages that we will not look at. One you might jot down. It would be good for you to reread it. It's a familiar passage. It's James chapter 3, where almost the entire passage is a word picture talking about the importance and power of our tongues. We're not even going to go there. I want to begin this morning actually with just a quick Bible study of laying this foundation of the importance of our words. And let's go to that very familiar Psalm 19. It's a psalm about uh, the Word of God. As Psalm, Psalm 19, Psalm 119, by the way, is also about the Word of God. Psalm 19 is that familiar passage that begins, The heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament showeth His handiwork. It's about the law of the Lord being perfect. He ends, the psalmist does, with a short prayer. Psalm 19.14, look what it says. As he concludes this incredible passage that is well known to us, he writes a verse that some of you might have memorized somewhere along the line. He writes, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And you know what struck me when I was looking at that verse? Is that God sees our words. The key word that we want to write here, we want to write four key words that remind us of the significance of our words. The first letter A is scrutiny. Scrutiny. God scrutinizes our words. Isn't it interesting that he doesn't write down, God hears your words. Look what it says. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your ears, O Lord. It doesn't say that. It says in your sight. God is keeping a watch on my mouth. That's very interesting. To me, that's very scary. Kind of makes you want to just get in a, a hole somewhere and hole up. Man, I, if God is watching my mouth, I better watch it. It's very serious. Secondly, the key word is accountability. Accountability. I want you to go to Matthew chapter 12. And this is the teaching of our Lord Jesus as he's confronted by some Pharisees. And he, he speaks back to them. And as you know, when Jesus and the Pharisees go at it, it's, it's really intense conversation. We'll begin at verse 33 of Matthew chapter 12. We're cutting in on the middle of a conversation here, an exchange between Christ and these religious leaders who were hypocrites. And Jesus looks at them and he says, verse 33, Matthew 12, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, he says to them, how can you speak good when you are evil? Here it is, underline this. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks so thoughts are formulated, values arise out of the heart, through the brain, out the mouth. Words are verbal thoughts. The good person out of 
His good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. That's how important it is. Accountability. We will be accountable for our words, and in fact, our words will document our very salvation in the presence of God someday. And you say, Pastor Van, wait a minute, there's a theological issue here, isn't there? I thought that justification was by grace through faith in Christ alone. That is correct. Then why did Jesus look at the Pharisees here and say, You will be justified by your words? What does that mean? Well, let's look at the word picture our Lord is presenting. It's really not that hard to get. He said, if, a, if it's a good tree, it's going to have good fruit. If you make the tree bad, its fruit's going to be bad. A tree will be known by its fruit. So what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to align in your thinking that when I speak words, it's as though it is the, the presence of fruit in my life that's coming from the root, coming up the tree, growing out on the branches The words are my fruit of my life. They they demonstrate who I am on the inside. Just like on the inside of a tree, it's demonstrated. We, We have no problem discerning an apple tree from a cherry tree, from a pear tree to a banana tree. They will bring forth their fruit. It will be identified by its fruit. You also need to remember that Jesus is speaking specifically to the Pharisees here. So the first application is in the is in the cultural, geographical, timeline context. And you remember that these men looked at Jesus and said, you're of Beelzebul. You're of the devil. And so on the day of judgment, their very words are going to be used to condemn them. But it kind of makes us think about uh, a scene that is written in Revelation chapter 20, That's where we have an account that we call the Great White Throne Judgment in Revelation 20. You don't have to turn there, but just listen a minute. In that scene, it says that the dead will rise. In the context, it seems best to understand that to be the dead of all who are outside of Christ. It says the earth and the sky And everything will flee from the presence of the one who is on the great white throne. And so it's like this great white throne upon upon whom sits Christ himself, the one who will judge. And it's like in a vacuum, everything else, a reverse vacuum or something. uh, Everything is gone from his presence. And all these dead line up and come before him. And then it says, and if their name was not written in the book of life, they were cast forever in the eternal lake of fire. So the book of life is a record of everybody who's been to the cross, who's in Christ, and the righteousness of Christ has covered them, and they're robed in Christ's righteousness, and the blood of Christ has cleansed them. They're a child of God. Their name's in the book. And so if people's name is not in the book on this particular judgment of the dead, they will be cast into the eternal lake of fire. You kind of get the idea when you read between the lines in that passage that they evidently are arguing on behalf of themselves, look, my name might not be in the book, but I'm a really good guy because it says next, it says, and the books will be opened. So there's a book and then there's books that will be opened. And you get the idea that these books are the record of their lives. It's, it's like, the, it's like the, 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 the eternal present now of their lives. Okay, you want to see how you lived? Here it is. And they open the books. And by looking at the books, maybe every word that they've ever spoken is recorded in the books. And if you have a righteous life in Christ, that righteousness will be seen and heard through your words. And you would be able then to lay out the words of a person's life on some kind of a a long uh, demonstration stage where all your words would be laid out. And you should be able to see at this point They became new in Christ. All those are their old words. Here's how they talk now after Christ. You can see the difference that Christ makes. We can just evaluate your life of words and we'll know whether you're in Christ or not. Isn't that interesting? And so there is a level of accountability. By the way, you know, I've been reminding us that every answer to every question that's a problem around here is run to the cross. And one of the things that happens at the cross, at that great exchange that we reference, is where my sin is laid down and I receive the righteousness of Christ. That means that every good thing that Jesus ever did in the eyes of God is credited to my account. He kept the law. He never said a bad word. 
Everything that Jesus did good is credited to my account in the mind of God. And everything bad that I've done, every horrible word, every curse word, every vile thing I've ever thought and said is transferred over on Christ. And so when God sees us and we stand before him just, it's as though every word Jesus ever spoke were my words and every word I ever spoke were Jesus's words. That's pretty cool. And so by my words... I will be justified because the words of Christ will be mine. It's interesting. There is a level of accountability found in our words, and it's downright scary, isn't it? Thirdly, I want you to see uh, that there is an authenticity about us. Authenticity is the key word. And we go to James chapter 1. I referenced James 3, but we're in James 1. And I want you to notice there, Hebrews, James, towards the end of your New Testament. And James, practically speaking, says this. James 1.26, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, notice this, so you think you're a pretty good person, you think you're pretty religious, you got your act together, if you don't bridle your tongue, but deceives your heart, your own heart, this person's religion is worthless. Notice that the test of authenticity of a work of Christ that's gone on in your life is the measure of your words. He goes on to amplify and he says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained by the world. It's not an outward, uh, outward external trappings of good works. It is that the newness of life in Christ, you will care for orphans. You will care for widows. You will care about being spotted by the sin of the world. In fact, it will show in your words. If you have a pure, undefiled religion, it'll be able to be heard on your mouth. It's pretty powerful. It's pretty scary. We have scrutiny. Our words will be scrutinized by God himself. Accountability. We're going to be accountable for every word we ever say. Thirdly, there's an authenticity that is born out in our language, whether or not we're really in Christ. Now we go to Proverbs and there we'll begin our study. But our fourth concept here is we lay a foundation as to the seriousness of this and the clarity with which God's word speaks to the point is in Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 3. Now look what Solomon wrote here about the tongue. Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 3. Look what he says. Whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. I mean, that's just a little, that's a little saying, a little pithy word of wisdom that we ought to just kind of like maybe tattoo on our arms or something. Tattoos are cool. Why don't you put that out there? Whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. That's how important this is. And the person who doesn't, but opens wide his lips will come to ruin You'll come to ruin by your mouth. It's interesting, isn't it? 21.23 says very similarly. 21.23 says, Whoever keeps his mouth and his tongue keeps himself out of trouble. It's interesting. In Proverbs now, as we do our study, one of the things you're going to need to understand is that there are multiple words that are used for our words or our language, the, the words that come out of our mouths. He's going to say lips. He's going to say tongue. He's going to say mouth. He's going to say words. He's going to say conversation sometimes. Lips, tongue, mouth. He's not talking about the physical part of our face now. He's talking about our words. I knew it before I started the study, but I was, I was still very impressed by the volume of material that Solomon wrote on the Proverbs written about our speech. I'm, I didn't double check in my research, but I'm going to guess that there is no other topic in Proverbs that is talked about as much as the words of our mouth. There are more Proverbs, I'm suggesting. Somebody could do that research and tell me. You can do it on your phone by the time you leave church, probably, but you don't have to do that. But it, is, it, is, it would not be difficult for me to believe that there are more Proverbs written about our words, about our tongue, about our speech than any other single topic in the Proverbs. Would you agree with me that we live in a culture of carelessness when it comes to our speech? 
Our culture has just been on such a downgrade when it comes to our speech. It's why I've entitled our sermon this morning on our wisdom that works, Lessons from Proverbs. The topic is verbal vulgarity. Verbal vulgarity. On every front, um, we hear terrible language. I was helping a guy at the pharmacy yesterday and I dropped him off while he went into the pharmacy to get his refill. I sat there in the car just kind of thinking and and a bunch of young people, they were basically good-looking young people, I thought, probably productive college students. And as they walked by my vehicle with the window rolled down, it was horrible, their speech, as they used vulgar language. And I just thought to myself, what a shame. There were people around, and they were just laughing and carrying on and talking terribly. So acceptable in our culture. The challenge for us today is is that when God does a work in his people, he calls his church out of the old ways into a new way, and it ought to be discernible in our speech. This should be very convicting to us. So let's study Solomon, and let's learn how to live above reproach in our language in this culture of carelessness. I have just selected four areas that I call four areas of insensitivity. Um, There are probably 10 or 12 that we could study out of Proverbs. Here are just four that I think are relevant for us. Um, Some are a challenge in my own life. Some might be a challenge that I've picked up upon just in the church at large. First of all, words that are not true. Words that are not true. We're talking about lying here. And we know that God cares about lying because in Exodus chapter 20, verse 16, in the second half of the list of the Ten Commandments, remember the first half, and it kind of talks about an applicable point to our language as well, that we shall not use His name in vain. We should never use the names of God or Jesus in, a, in, in just expletives, just saying these things for no reason. We would profane His name, His holy name. We wouldn't use it that way. And God's people especially shouldn't do that. That's in the first half of the list of the Ten Commandments, and that's vertical relationship. The first uh, four and a half, five of the Ten Commandments teach us how to live vertically. How do I live right before God? The second half of the Ten Commandments are all about relationships horizontally. How do I get along with my fellow man? And you don't read far in the list, and it says... Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor or give false testimony. Don't lie about your neighbor. Tell the truth. God cares about this. In fact, he cares so much as we turn to Proverbs chapter 6 and we research what the wisdom literature says about this. Let's go to chapter 6, beginning with verse 16 to this incredible list. And we find out, number one, that God hates lying. God hates lying. This is an interesting list. Notice what it says. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. So that's a writing technique, a writing mechanism. Guy's writing and he says, there are six things that God really hates. Seven, yea, are an abomination. It means pay attention. This is an important list. And I'm telling you, these things really matter. Haughty eyes, that's pride. Number two, a lying tongue. What do you know? And hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil. Here it is again. A false witness who breathes out lies and one who sows discord among the brethren. Isn't it interesting that of this list of the seven big bad things that God hates, in fact, they're an abomination to him. Two of them have to do with words that are not true, with lying. God hates lying. It's interesting. I want you to see, too, that number two, lying brings serious consequence. Chapter, chapter 19 of Proverbs, verses 5 and 9. Chapter 19, 5 and 9. And I have edited way down the verses that are available on this topic in Proverbs. There are many, many. And for the sake of our, our message time and just being focused on the key points, um, I thought it was best for us to just limit the number of verses listed under each one. Proverbs 19.5, a false witness will not go unpunished, and he who breathes out lies will not escape. You see, we live in a culture that doesn't believe that. We live in a culture, and it is remarkable, 
That there are certain identifiable peoples in certain identifiable positions that it seems like every time they move their lips, they're lying. And they seem to get away with it. And then other people say something and they're held accountable. And we have these double duplicitous, multiplicitous standards in our culture based upon your positions on whatever. We live in a weird world with this. And in a made-up morality, it's not a biblical morality that we're living by. But God says in chapter 19 and verse 5, He says, A false witness will not go unpunished. How many of you believe a false witness will not go unpunished? Because God said it. You mark it down. They will not go unpunished. If not in this life, in the life to come. That's a very serious thing. He says, And he who breathes out lies, they won't escape. They won't escape. He reinforces it in verse 9. A false witness will not go unpunished, and he who breathes out lies will perish. It's a powerful reality, this thing of lying. Reminds me of a story that I read a long time ago about a long time ago when people traveled by train and rail. And the story goes like this. Back in the days when kids traveled on trains to get somewhere with their parents, The train didn't charge kids that were five or under. And so this six-year-old fellow was told by his mother as they were carrying their bags to the train, tell them you're five. The little boy frowned and he got on the train and he sat down and the conductor came by and he said, so how old are you, son? And he said, uh, five. So he didn't pay anything and his mother paid her fare and the conductor left. The conductor came back a couple of hours later just to talk with him, and he, he rubbed his hand in the little fellow's hair, and he said, Well, how are you getting along, pal? The boy answered, Really good. And the conductor continued their chat, and he said in the course of conversation, So let's see, when are you going to be six? The little boy hesitated a minute, and then he said, About the time I get off this train, I'll be turning six. <laughs> and we laugh, and we think it's funny, and the mom says to herself, It's no big deal. It's no big deal. Let's just stop and think for a minute. If ever there's an area that we need to care about, it is truthfulness. Why? Because God in His holiness and in His character, one of the attributes of God Himself is that He is truth. In the personification of His Son, the Lord Jesus, when He lived on earth, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And if you go to John chapter 8, and you read about Lucifer and the devil, what does it say about him? Jesus told the Pharisees that you're a bunch of liars, just like your father, the devil. And when he speaks his native tongue, the tongue with which he grew up, the tongue that he's most familiar with, the tongue with which he's most fluent, it's lies. So if you don't speak the truth, you're not speaking God's language. You're speaking the language of Satan himself. That ought to be convicting enough. And so what does this mother think on this train? Oh, it's kind of cute. He just turned six a little while ago. What did she do? She taught her son that a couple bucks was worth it for lying. A lie was worth a couple bucks. He taught this, she taught this boy that when you want to manipulate things, just change the, change the story. She taught this boy to disrespect The deal that was made, the contract, you ride on my train, you pay a couple bucks. It's legitimate. It's right. You're giving me a service and I'm lying so that now not only is she teaching her son to lie, but she's taught him to steal off the train. He lied so she could steal. She stole money that she owed the train. And so she thinks it's cute and she thinks it's funny and it's not funny one bit. It's tragic. And so a little boy grows up and learns how to lie by taking a ride one afternoon from his mom who thought it would be good to just save a buck or two. Parents, this is serious. This is real. What are your children hearing you say? Words that are not true. It's very, very serious. What I want to do now as we click these off the rest of the way and we'll pick up tempo just a little bit is I want us to turn to the New Testament epistles, and I want to reinforce on each one of these four points that this has been retaught to the church. So Solomon gives us a wisdom principle, but what I want you to see is that the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, taught this to the church. This is part of our Christian character. This is part of church behavior. We are not like the rest of the world. God has done a work in us at the cross. 
And it should make a difference even with our words. And so would you mark Ephesians chapter 4 as you turn there. Go to Ephesians chapter 4. You'll notice up around verse 17 is where it is in my Bible in Ephesians 4. There's a, a subtitle that was put in by the editors of the Bibles, of the Bible printers. And they said that, that this is a section about the new life. The new life. What? The new life in Christ. And now he's going to give practical instruction about what your new life in Christ looks like. We don't have time to read the whole thing, but I want to reinforce that what Solomon is teaching us as a wisdom principle is is taught in the church for us today. Look what it says in Ephesians 4.25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor. That makes you think about Exodus 20.16, doesn't it? Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. Would you put something in there? Because we're going to flip back now to Ephesians chapter 4 several times. Let's return to our Proverbs study. In this culture of carelessness, we're looking at four areas of insensitivity. The first of which is words that are not true. God hates lying. Lying brings serious consequence. It's reinforced in the New Testament. Philippians chapter 4, verse 8 says that whatsoever things are true, think on these things. And so we go to their second point, and that is letter B, words that hurt and destroy. Here's another set of category of words that we need to avoid, words that hurt and destroy. Namely, we're talking about gossip. Gossip. We're going to throw in slander as a concept here. And I want you to see as we return to Proverbs in the writing of Solomon, primarily here now, in Proverbs chapter 11, that we see that gossip, that is, sharing information about someone to someone else who has no need to know this information, often in a form that hurts them, hurts their reputation. Slander is using words to intentionally undermine and tear down the reputation of somebody. Often slander includes lies or it is only partial information so that it leads the listener to believe something that's true because they don't have all of the information. So you can convince yourself that you haven't lied, but you've only shared enough information to put that person down to show that they have done what they're supposed to do, but you've left it out of context or explanation. And so you lead that person on purpose to think poorly of that other person. That's slander and gossip Sharing information that they have no need to know that is almost always not in the best interest of the person about whom you're talking. We see in Proverbs chapter 11 that that gossip and slander, number one, destroys trust. Look at chapter 11, verses 12 and 13. Whoever belittles his neighbor lacks sense. But a man of understanding remains silent. If you belittle your neighbor... You lack sense. It's better for you to remain silent. Now notice what it says in verse 13. Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets. That's a gossip. Revealing secrets. Putting people down to hurt them with your slanderous words. But he who is trustworthy in spirit. Look at that. ESV says keeps a thing covered. You don't betray that about your friend or about the other person. You cover it. You control your speech. Gossip and slander destroys trust. Not only that, chapter 16, verse 28, it separates friends. It separates friends. Proverbs 16, 28, look what it says. A dishonest man spreads strife. Your translation might say a lying tongue instead of a dishonest man. A lying tongue or a dishonest person spreads strife. And a whisperer, a whisperer is often the word used in Proverbs for a gossip. One who's a whisperer. A whisperer separates close friends. There it is, just as clearly written as can be. Notice 17.9 reinforces this. 17.9, a rebuke. Excuse me, whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter, that's a gossip, he who repeats a matter separates close friends. You can continue to look up the other verses. You want to also know that if you gossip and if you slander, it causes conflict. 26.20, notice what it says. 
in 26.20. It says, For lack of wood, the fire goes out. And where there is no whisperer, there's that gossip again, where there is no whisperer, quarreling ceases. So where there is gossip, there's going to be quarreling and hurt feelings and fighting. You need to know that conflict, conflict is often the result of inappropriate speech about other people. And so words that hurt and destroy, namely gossip, end up destroying trust, separating friends, and causing conflict. Let's flip back to 431 this time. Actually, let's pick it up at 29. Look what he says in 4. Ephesians Ephesians 4, 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as it fits the occasion, that they may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor, and there it is, and slander be put away from you along with all malice and be kind to one another. That's church behavior right there. That's church world. We don't gossip. We don't slander. We, we reflect the grace in our speech of our Lord Jesus Christ. Third category of words that we want to look at as far as areas of insensitivity and carelessness in our world are words that are spoken in anger. Words that are spoken in anger. I think this one brought some conviction to my heart as I reflected upon my own life in my preparation. You ever hear somebody say, especially mature people or someone towards the end of their life, and they'll say, I have no regrets I have no regrets. I think if you can say that, that's wonderful. I, don't, I could never say that. I mean, I haven't bench pressed 300 pounds yet. I have a regret. I mean, there's all, I, haven't, I haven't killed a bull elk with my bow yet. I have regrets. I, I spoke with anger in my voice to my children, and I've seen their spirit crushed by my voice when they were children. I have regrets. You see why we run to the cross? The only way I can deal with my own ignorant anger and stupidity as an impatient, busy father when my children looked at me and said something and I snapped at them and crushed their spirit with angry words is I run to the cross and let the blood of Christ cleanse me from how much sin? All sin. All sin. We have angry words that we have to worry about. First of all, we want to recognize in chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, that harsh words fuel wrath. Harsh words fuel wrath. 15, 1 and 2. A soft answer turns away wrath. Isn't that good? A soft, gentle answer turns away wrath. But harsh words stir up anger. You know, what comes to my mind right now is the image of a major league manager running out of his dugout after the umpire, uh, probably the home plate umpire or the third base umpire when he messes up a call. Is he using gentle, quiet language? No, he's using, I mean, you can't even watch your television because he's mouthing the word. So obviously he is attacking in anger. And what do they do? They They stand up against each other and they're at each other and harsh words stir up anger. But a gentle answer turns away wrath. So harsh words fuel wrath. Verse 2, the tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouths of fools pour out folly. In anger we will say things that we will regret. Mark it down. It happens all the time. And those words seek themselves into the soul of our loved one. And they're sensitive. And we've said things that we should have never said in anger that we really probably don't even mean. And the hurt might never go away. I was visiting a lady this week, an older woman. And um, she illustrated two things to me. (laughs) She illustrated, by the way, words that are true. Uh, I walked in and I had my old clothes on and a ball cap and I was visiting her in the hospital and she looked at me and she squinted and, and she said, are you my pastor? <laughs> and I said, yes, I am. And, and she said, well, you've gained a lot of weight, haven't you? 
I said, Mrs. Marceau would probably agree with that right there. But she spoke the truth, didn't we? You know, a little reminder that we always speak the truth, but we don't always have to speak the truth. In the course of our conversation, she apologized to me for how she was speaking to me in that conversation. She was upset. She spoke to me and she apologized and she said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. She said, my mother used to scream at me and I talk like that now. And she's in her mid-70s. Her mother screamed at her in anger and she's now an old woman and she is raising her voice and having to apologize to her pastor. I mean... Words are powerful, aren't they? Words are powerful. Somewhere along the line, we have to take responsibility for our own words, our own actions, our own attitudes. But harsh words fuel wrath. Harsh words must be restrained. 1727, 1727, and let's look here at what we see. Proverbs 1727, whoever restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Isn't that a good verse to remind ourselves? We must restrain our words. Let's look at 431 again in Ephesians. Ephesians 431, look what he said. We already read it. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor, that would be yappity, yappity, angry talk, clamor, slander, be put away from you, along with all malice, intent to hurt. Malice is words that are intent to hurt. Be kind to one another and tenderhearted. So as Christ has transformed us, the anger must go. We're newness. There's newness of life in Christ. The fruit of the Spirit is a peaceful spirit. Final category of carelessness with our words is words that are inappropriate. This is an interesting category of words. I'm talking about the source of our title today, verbal vulgarity, inappropriate words. There are categories. Uh, we use word, we say a word is a curse word, or we'll say it's a swear word, or it's a vulgarity, or it's a, a perverse, um, crass word. Actually, there are categories of curse words. I thought it would be best not to list these words on the screen for you <laughs> or define them. And we only have a few minutes to wrap up our message today. And by and large, most of us use these words synonymously, don't we? A curse word, a swear word, a vulgarity. They actually have specific definitions and they have specific kinds of words. They are all to be done away with in the life of the believer. But we're back in Proverbs in 2020. And let's look at at directly what a curse is. This is a reminder to young people. And it says in Proverbs 2020, if one curses his father or his mother, his lamp will be put out in utter darkness. Uh, I don't know 100% what it means that your lamp will be put out in utter darkness, but it isn't good. And it might be dying being stoned to death under Old Testament law. The idea there is that you have cursed someone. You have cursed your father and your mother. If you're a young person, you have, you have, you have requested that God would, would damn them to hell. That's a curse. Wishing God to treat them miserably. Put a curse on them. That speech is inappropriate. Second category of inappropriate speech. Number one, cursing. Number two, evil and crass. Word C-R-A-S-S. Crass evil words. Look at 15.4 in Proverbs. 15.4, notice what it says. A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it, perverseness in the tongue, breaks the spirit. Look at 28, 15.28. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer. You think before you answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. And so forth. Proverbs reinforces this. In fact, let's go to Colossians chapter 3 right now before we pick up our final category. And we'll, we'll go straight to Colossians. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians chapter 3. I want you to see verse 8 here in this passage. It's similar to the kind of writing that the Apostle Paul has in Ephesians in chapter 4. That in newness of life, some of these things are just not supposed to be present in our lives anymore. God should be convicting of us, this of us, 
In verse 7 of Colossians 3, he says, In these you too once walked when you were living in them, the old ways. But now, verse 8, you must put them all away. Put away anger. Put away wrath. Put away malice. Put away slander and obscene talk from your mouth. Notice verse 9 reinforces what we've been talking. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and you have put on the new self. You see, there's a contrast But notice he says in Colossians 3, obscene talk, evil, crass talk. And number three, I would add a category called twisted, twisted words. If you look in other translations, the ESV says this is obscene talk. KJV talks, uh, uses the phrase filthy communication, filthy communication. The NIV says filthy language. It's interesting to me. I would put in this category the the taking of words almost always that have meaning in the area of sexual behavior, mostly between a man and a woman at some level, and taking them and renaming them in some crass, evil, perverse way, and then using that as some kind of a word that is negative towards this person. And it's One of God's greatest gifts that He's ever given us is human sexuality. And they take it down into the gutter, turn it crass, turn it into perversion, and then turn it into the common everyday vernacular that they use. And I'll tell you what particularly bothers me since I'm on the subject, and you want to know, don't you, what your pastor thinks about this? Is that it particularly bothers me that there is a certain level of this language that makes it into the thesaurus of our everyday common acceptable language in our culture. And I hear it in the church. And it's nothing other than a description of certain kinds of of behavior that, that either God never intended to happen or it is a twisting of God intended behavior. It is given a new label, a new name, and now it means, well, something's bad. So it... And you use that language and it comes straight from the gutter and it's, it's crass and it's evil and it's perverse. And I'm calling on our church to stop saying it. And I'm calling on us to stop, to think about our words, to be careful how we speak. It's obscene. God says, don't talk like that. It's interesting to me that when our young men go off to train for battle and women, I... Especially more, it happens more in our young men. They're going to the Marine Corps, going to the Army, Navy, whatever, police academy. I like to get them aside and put my arm around them, punch them a little bit, see if they've done enough push-ups in preparation, and try to tell them, I'll be praying for you. We're with you. We're here. Remind them that they're entering an arena now. They're entering an arena where... To be defined as one of God's young men, you don't have to preach, you don't have to open your Bible, you don't have to do anything except this. And I tell him this, if you will just go and do not cuss or swear, do not use that language. Because for some reason, in our military and in our law enforcement, in our first responder world, it is so acceptable to talk perversely and crassly and to take evil terms and to use them three or four times in the same sentence when it doesn't even make sense to insert it in the sentence. So why should a kid from Fellowship Bible Church go and join that group of people and talk like they talk? Why would you do that? Well, Pastor Van, it's just the way everybody talks. It's the way they talk. I'm calling on you. I'm calling on you if you're in law enforcement, men and women, I'm calling on you if you're in, in first response to, to stop it. If you name the name of Christ, retrain your brain, retrain your vocabulary, especially if you've had a long tenure of service. I'm not down on you. I'm, I might be scolding you a little bit, but it is in love. And young people, don't allow yourself to ever begin talking like that. It's not helpful for anything. And in fact, our words have a lot to say about what's going on in our hearts. So what do we take home from this? Number one, what I get out of this is that it would be good to talk less, not more. It would be good for us to talk less, not more. Number two, our words expose our hearts. We'll not take time to turn there. We're out of time. Matthew 15, Jesus spoke directly 
to the Pharisees once again and told them that the mouth was what revealed what was in their hearts and that was what corrupted a man, not what went in their mouth. What goes in your mouth this direction and goes down. Remember, this is the Mountain Dew Five Guys passage. If you recall our Matthew series, it's okay to go to Five Guys and eat Five Guys in Mountain Dew. What goes into you doesn't corrupt you. It's what comes out of you that corrupts you, Jesus said. And your words are verbal thoughts and it exposes your heart. And that's very challenging. Number three, our words have great power. Our words have great power. I was reflecting upon what the lady I visited said to me about her mother yelling at her and apologizing to me. And I got to thinking about motherhood. And I want to end with just a brief word to young mothers here who have children in their homes. In Proverbs chapter 31, and I very much want this to be encouraging. I don't want it. It might be convicting, but I don't want it to shame anybody. I want it only to encourage you. In Proverbs chapter 31, we have this great expose of this amazing woman who is a superhero wife and mother. And in verse 26, it says that when she opens her mouth, wisdom comes out and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. And when I saw that, I just wanted to conclude today and I want to encourage and remind young mothers that you say a lot of words in a day, especially if you have young children in your home or teenagers. You are talking all the time to them, way more than the dad, generally speaking. Many of you, you are the teacher and the mother of your child. And so all day long, you're teaching your child. You're talking to your children. So what a shame when you are gone someday and they are old that reverberating in their mind are harsh words from their mother. How much better, how much better, and let me remind you, in James 3, he says that everybody's failed in this area. It's only a perfect man who hasn't failed in this area. She opens her mouth with wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. Moms, can I encourage you as you go from here, dads too, all of us, But let words of grace be there. When you fail, ask for forgiveness, restore relationship, and ask God to help you have words of kindness as you instruct your children. I know it's not easy, and I know it's tough, and I've already admitted one of my great regrets of my life is seeing the faces of my children fall in despair as their father was harsh with his words, discouraging instead of helpful. Our words really matter. Would you agree with me? I tell you, we've only scratched the surface of this study, so may the Lord use it through His Holy Spirit to strengthen us in our Christian walk that we would have a wisdom that works in everyday life. Will you stand with me, please? And so, Father, we need your help once again. We want to grow and grace. We want to have speech that is seasoned with salt, that is only helpful to listeners, that is characterized by kindness. Father, in this verbally vulgar world in which we live, would you help us as your people to be defined by a speech that is Christ-like? And that it comes from a deep well, our hearts and our minds that have been transformed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.